What if there was a different way to live and work? Beyond the hustle and hype. Beyond the never-ending race to get more, do more, be more. A way that's grounded, intuitive, intentional, and in line with your deepest, truest self. You're listening to Wellpreneur with me, your host, Amanda Cook. Together, we'll explore nature-based personal growth for high-achieving women. I invite you to plant your feet on the earth, slow down, tune in, and get ready to create a life of meaning and magic. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Wellpreneur Podcast. Ooh, have I been saving a fantastic interview for you this late in the season. I've been so excited to publish this one. This week, my guest is Aviva Ram. Now, if you're not familiar with Aviva, she is a medical doctor. She went to Yale Medical School. She's a midwife. She's an herbalist. She's got multiple books and courses, and she really focuses in on women's and children's health. Now, I found Aviva when I picked up a copy. Oh, actually, I found Aviva a few years ago, but the thing that really reminded me about her and made me really want to have her on the podcast was when I picked up a copy of her book, The Adrenal Thyroid Revolution. Having worked through my own thyroid issues a few years ago, I was like, ah, I wish this book had been available. This book is just awesome. I think it's something that you would definitely want to use with your clients and give copies to your clients if you've got any women struggling with adrenal or thyroid issues because it really takes you through like a step-by-step plan on healing yourself. I really thought it was brilliant. So I was very excited when Aviva accepted to come on the podcast because we have so much to talk about. So of course, we're kicking it off by talking about thyroid and stress and why in particular there's so many adrenal and thyroid issues these days, but also like in the entrepreneurial community and just with having these crazy stressful lifestyles like we have. And then because Aviva's a wellpreneur herself, we're talking about like her own routines as an entrepreneur, how she's found time to build self-care and downtime into her schedule, what she does to keep social media from taking over her life, how she runs her entire business with really just her husband and her process now to start building a team, which That completely floored me because from what I knew about Aviva, I assumed she had like this huge team and was really like running this big online presence, but actually it's just her and her husband doing it. I love discovering things like that because it just makes me really appreciate that you can do so much online without needing to make huge investments in teams and resources, right? It's it's possible to have a huge impact in the world and you can do it from your computer. It's really cool. So I know you are going to enjoy this episode this week. And as always, we can continue the conversation about this episode over in the Wellpreneur community group on Facebook. I would love to see you in there. Okay, let's jump into this interview with Aviva Ram. Hi, Aviva. Thanks for joining me on the show today. And it is such a pleasure to be here with you. I'm really excited to have you on because I've actually, I bought your book, The Adrenal Thyroid Revolution. Gosh, it must, I mean, right when it came out and I've recommended it to so many people. I'm also an herbalist and I'm just so interested in your approach of how you combine modern medicine, like allopathic medicine and herbalism and everything. Plus you're a wellpreneur. So it's super cool to have you on the show. Thank you. (laughs) So the number one thing we wanted to talk about is about this issue of entrepreneurial burnout. It's so relevant for wellpreneurs because obviously we want to be well 
right? While, while helping other people get well. So I'm curious, can we just start off for people that aren't familiar with you? Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what it is that you do and, and how you came to work in this topic? Yeah. So right now, my work life is sort of multiple streams of things I do. And it is a combination of my clinical medical practice, my online presence, where my commitment is to provide women with the highest level of most actionable self-care tools they can get their hands on. And, you know, within that's my podcast, my blog, some online courses, and then, of course, writing books, as you mentioned, because you read one of them. So, yeah, it's really all about the different ways that I can use what I've learned over the past 35 years as a midwife, herbalist, MD, to help women take back their health and make the decisions that they feel the best about, whether that is maybe using a conventional therapy because that's the best choice or whether it's an herbal remedy or even a a self-care ritual. How did you start to really focus in on the issue of the thyroid? I guess maybe that's a dumb question because we're all hearing about the <laughs> thyroid all the time, right? <laughs> but- well, that's really what it was. I, it's not a dumb question at all. It's actually really shocking. You know, I'm a midwife by background and a medical doctor focusing in on women's health. So working with women's hormones is has something that I've been doing since you know, for 35 years now. And I can tell you that 15 years ago, 20 years ago, seven years ago, we were not all hearing about the thyroid. I remember hearing a lot about thyroid when I, so I'm turning 52 this year. And I can remember when I was a little girl, my aunt and my mom and, and my grandmother talking about thyroid because it was sort of like, oh, we've all gained weight because our thyroid is slow. But it was kind of a faddish thing back in that day, right? Like the early 70s. And then it kind of went into silence. And maybe about Five years ago, I I was shocked at how many women were saying, Dr. Ram, I feel like I am just living on fumes or Dr. Aviva, I'm exhausted all the time and my hair is falling out and I'm gaining weight and I've been to five doctors and they all said I'm fine. And as I started doing more thyroid testing, I was going, oh my goodness, every single one of these women who's telling me this either has a thyroid problem that hasn't been diagnosed or is on the verge. You know, she's like simmering, but not quite boiling. So her doctor said her labs were fine. And so it was really just listening to my patients and watching what was going on in their lives. And then also keeping up with relevant medical literature, what we've actually seen is both globally, but significantly in the U.S., a massive escalation in the rates of many autoimmune diseases, not just thyroid, but thyroid sort of topping that list. And because at least 85% of those suffering with a thyroid problem are women, and my practice is primarily women, I think I was just in a sort of self-selected population. And we also know that women with autoimmune diseases, um, including Hashimoto's, it can take, this is a shocking statistic, it can take up to five years and five doctors to get a proper diagnosis. So a lot of women who come to me are coming to me because they're looking for an alternative, either because philosophically that's what they inherently want or because they've fallen through the cracks of every other doctor and end up in my office. So I think I was getting a sort of uh, cream of the crop of thyroid and autoimmune disease patients coming into me because of all those convergence of factors. Talk a little bit about the relationship between stress and the adrenal thyroid situation. Yeah. So if you think about your body as 
uh, one of its sort of driving things that it does is to produce energy so that you can pump your heart and you can use your brain and use your muscles and breathe and do all the wonderful things we human beings do. We need to produce energy, but we also need to conserve energy. And the thyroid is like the body's thermostat. And depending on the temperature of the room, also we'll call that your body, the thyroid thermostat either goes up or goes down. And when your brain, where your brain is sort of the meter that's making the decision of, okay, we have energy to burn right now, or we don't have energy to burn. When that meter perceives that you're under stress, particularly if you have an infection, if you are exhausted and burnt out, if you're not getting enough sleep, or if you have chronic underlying inflammation, your adrenals are actually producing something called cortisol. It's a hormone. And that cortisol is sort of what's giving the brain meter the message. Hey, all's clear here. We've got plenty of energy to spend. Go, let's go. Let's, let's metabolize. Let's burn calories. Let's fire everything up. Or when there's a lot of stress, this primitive mechanism tells your thyroid vis-a-vis your adrenals and cortisol yo, you know what? We're in a little bit of an energy crisis right now. So we got to be stocking away this energy. We can't just be burning it. And when that message gets sent to the thyroid, it's one of the things that makes the thyroid turn down the thermostat. And then that's why you feel cold, low energy. Your body is literally hitting the circuit breaker because it's on overload. And that's the main connection between what's going on in the adrenals and what's going on in the thyroid. The cortisol actually can shut down thyroid hormone production. It can shut down the body's ability to use thyroid and it can interfere with the message of the brain telling the thyroid to get going and produce more thyroid hormone. So there's three different kind of key points where the adrenals can literally physically put a kibosh on what the thyroid is doing. Mm -hmm. Shifting gears a little bit, but running our businesses without burning out and without I, you know, I think, uh, I know I had the misconception back when I had a corporate job that, oh, if I could just start working for myself, then all this stress would go away. Ha ha ha. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, right. I heard a quote. I heard a quote that entrepreneurs are people who would rather work 80 hours a week for themselves than 40 hours a week for someone totally. else. And I'm like, 80 times how many? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, it just, that was such, I just had my rose colored glasses on, I think. Um, yeah. And so, What's been your experience with trying to grow your business, like create this business online and grow it without suffering burnout? You know, it's a really important and powerful question. And I can't even tell you how many women entrepreneurs and self-determined, you know, really high achieving women I do see with some form of burnout, stress in their adrenal stress response system or thyroid problems. And you know, it's a, it's really also a perfect time to be asking me personally this question because we're at a stage with my business where it's not teeny tiny anymore in terms of the demand for content and deliverables, but we're still really, until actually the past two weeks, we've been basically operating on a team of two, me and my husband. And so we got to the point recently with the business where we couldn't go back because we had already offered things that we had to deliver. So the only option was to grow. And to grow meant we were getting to a point where we were starting to actually literally exceed the amount of days available 
in a week and hours in a day and, and still be healthy and functional. So, you know, when you get to that point, you have to make really there are strategic decisions all along the way, right? When you're first getting started as an entrepreneur, often you're keeping your day job and then you're working your extra hours. And often in that phase, you're so inspired and gung-ho and ready to get out of your day job that I think that there's like a force of energy that's it's like a river. You can't stop it. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, you reach a different critical juncture where you have to decide, okay, is this manageable on my own? Do I need a team? You know, what scale do I want to get to? How big do I want to be, right? Like, I know that I don't want a team of 30 people. I mean, if it happened because it organically grew that way, I wouldn't say, okay, you know, no way. But it's a lot of work to manage a big team. So it's really all about decision-making points. And I think it's about accepting to some extent that there are ebbs and flows of demand. And that sometimes like if you're doing a launch on a project, it just is really overwhelming. And if you're in that mindset where I'm an entrepreneur, this should be easy, you're going to get yourself tripped up. Whereas if you can say I'm an entrepreneur, sometimes this is actually really damn hard work and I'm just going to have to put in the hours, but then plan for a break after. And I've found that I think for all of us, and this really fits into what we know about adrenal physiology, stress hormone physiology, is that as human beings, we have an incredible capacity to withstand stress. I mean, think about what kinds of stresses our near ancestors have been through and our far ancestors have been through. We have a really great capacity for it. But what we don't have is a capacity to be under constant, unrelenting stress. We need to be a little bit more like an elastic band. An elastic, if you think about it like an elastic band in a pair of pants, if you stretch it and then let it go back to its normal kind of contracted space, it can rebound. And you can pretty much get you know years and years out of that same pair of elastic, whatever, if you wear elastic waistbands. But if you stretch elastic too far or if you stretch it for too long and you don't give it a chance to rebound, you'll stretch it beyond its capacity and then it gets damaged beyond repair. So if we can think about our life and think about our waking hours and making sure that for every push, there is a time for recuperation, you know, and that that extends to each day, each week, each month, and each year. So think about how am I doing something to repair myself every day or let myself rest and recuperate? How am I doing something every week? And and it's up to each of us to know how much of that we really need and how far we can push until we start to see signs that we're getting to a breaking point rather than pushing past that breaking point. Being open to finding the right help, learning how to really interview people, because sometimes you can think you're hiring help and then it ends up being more work and more stress. So all these different decision-making points, keeping in mind that need to really know when to hit pause and to do it, to make it a part of your life rather than something that you're like, oh, shoot, I went way past that point and now I'm in disrepair. Mm. What about on the self-care side too, or just the self-care, but also nutrition and just things we can do to make ourselves more resilient to stress? Yeah, it's so important. I feel for me at least to have some semblance of self-care built into my daily life. So not skipping meals. I mean, if you get so deep in a project and you're so into that flow and it's going to happen once in a while, you look up and six hours went by and you're like, oh my gosh, I forgot to eat. But that's different than perpetually skipping meals. I'm really diligent about my sleep. 
getting at least seven hours of sleep a night is so important for our brain health. And the thing is, I think a lot of us think that self-care is frivolous, but actually when you look at the studies or, or that it's taking time away from valuable productive time, like you're not being productive when you're taking self-care time or when you're just sitting down to eat or take a long bath or take a walk outside in nature or watch goofy comedy, whatever it is that is restorative for you. I think we think that it's wasted time, but actually study after study after study after study shows that when we keep our nutrition levels high, when we do take time to contemplate our navel or a tree or take a long bath or write in a journal, those restorative practices actually up-level our creativity, up-level our productivity, and reduce the amount of mistakes we make. So we actually get more out of our time when we are taking time off than if we just keep pushing and pushing and pushing indefinitely. So yeah, for me, movement is really important and paying attention to my body and how I'm feeling. Like sometimes I'm pushing on something for a few hours and then I notice, you know what? I'm getting diminishing returns. I'm distracted. I'm wanting to go look at something on Facebook or Instagram or I'm getting distracted. I actually pay attention to that and say, oh, my brain has reached a natural stopping point. There's actually literature about something called ultradian rhythm breaks, URBs. And instead of pushing beyond the diminishing returns, getting up and saying, all right, I need a bio break. My body needs to move. I've been at this computer stationary for too long, or I need to hydrate, or I need to eat something, or I need to get out in nature. I just need to get on the phone with a girlfriend or just play. Paying attention to when what your natural rhythm is and instead of pushing against it, learning to go with it can make a huge difference in your daily flow and creativity and energy. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the people listening will really resonate with what you said about self-care because I know we've got a Facebook community and we often talk about the challenge of trying to get clients to take time for self-care because I think a lot of wellpreneurs have realized that it is so important and want to also get their clients to do it. But they found that just saying like trying to tell people to take more time for self-care, there's a lot of resistance around it. Um, and there so, is. I yeah. mean, I think as women, we've also been taught that taking care of ourselves is sort of the lowest thing on the list. And I think that it's considered a little bit feminine. And I think that when we get into this entrepreneurial mindset, somehow we think we need to get this stereotypical dogged, masculine, go, go, go thing. And for me, what I find is that pointing out to my clients and my patients and my students that taking this time, and, and you can show them data on it, and that you reduce your mistakes, you actually increase your earning potential, you feel better, you are more creative. It's sort of reaching someone where they are, right? Like it's reaching your client where she is, what is she worried about in taking self-care? Or she might actually have realistic obstacles. She might be a single mom, as my nurse practitioner says, an indie mom. I like that independent mom who is juggling kids and a day job and getting her personal business off the ground, self-care time might really be precious. So then it's creating realistic amounts of self-care. It might not be an hour every day. It might be an hour once a week or two hours on a Saturday morning where she swaps childcare with a girlfriend or a neighbor and she just pushes herself to take a couple of hours to decompress. So meeting someone where they are is really important. And I know for myself, you know, when I'm in a big launch, there's no way I'm going to knock off at six o'clock. I'm sometimes working till midnight, getting something going. Something fell through the cracks that someone else was supposed to write that didn't get written or 
our landing page didn't work the way we thought. And you're just like, all right, this has to happen. So, you know, being, being realistic about filling that time in when you can, but making it somewhat regular. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you would be willing to share a bit about your personal journey and how you decided to even come online and shift your create a business in this way rather than just sticking with a traditional practicing midwife and doctor? It's kind of hilarious because my husband and I, we've been together for 34 years. And when we first started our journey together, we lived in Northern Vermont in a house that had only wood heat, only wood for cooking. And, you know, we had a well and we had electricity, but we didn't have a lot of fancy (laughs) modern systems. And I was like, I'm not going to have a computer. I'm going to be really back to the land. And pretty soon the world caught up with me and I had to catch up with the world. A publisher, for example, would only take a manuscript if you had sent it electronically. So I had to kind of get on board. But I still had a very high-touch, low-tech medical practice, midwifery practice, way of life. And a big shift happened for me. Frankly, I was working with a doctor in the U.S. who's super famous, Mark Hyman. He had invited me to join his practice about six years or so now. And I firsthand saw what he was able to do with an online presence. And then at some point, I had an experience where I wrote a blog called How Being a Good Girl Can Be Hazardous to Your Health. I think that's what it's called. And I remember it was a Tuesday when I posted that blog. And it was the Tuesday before Thanksgiving maybe five, four or five years ago. And I thought, who's going to read this? Because it's like Tuesday before Thanksgiving, everyone's shopping and getting ready to go, you know, here in the US, like crazy busy with that kind of stuff. And within 24 hours, there were like 20,000 likes on that blog. And I thought, wow, in the average career of a family doctor or GP, you're going to probably see 20,000 patients at the most in your entire 30-year career. Not 20,000 visits, but unique patients. And I thought, oh my God, I have just reached 20,000 women with one blog that I wrote in one day and a click of the button. And it was like suddenly the scalability of information delivery became so evident to me. And I thought, okay, I do still see patients one-on-one, but I can spend a day, eight hours in my clinic seeing eight patients, or I could write a blog in eight hours or four hours and reach 20,000 or 40,000 or 50,000 women. And then I went from that to taking my women's herbal course, which had been online, but in a very low key way with still hard copy deliverable materials and me hand grading everything. And I went, wow, I mean, what can we do with launching an online program? And the scalability of of finances making this health information deliverable at really high level health information, because I do these very information dense programs at relatively affordable prices for professionals and very affordable prices for the general public, not only became this incredible information delivery vehicle, but there was so much reciprocity of people saying, well, we love what you're doing for free. Can we buy it? That the monetization of it was so much that, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, multiple seven figures, but it was enough that I left my day job as a doctor in a private practice and then began to consolidate the online information and then open up my own small private practice, which is much smaller a part of my day-to-day work than the online. Because again, it combines monetization, doing what feels like really good work and 
changing the world, sometimes eight or 10 or 20,000 women at a time. As you were starting to do this shift from in-person to online, what doubts and fears came up for you? Oh, they still come up. I mean, they really do, Amanda. I mean, every time I'm going to do a launch, especially for the big programs that I do, it's like, what if I give this party and nobody comes this time? Or what if people are tired of it? Or what if it's not good enough? Or what if five more people have come on the scene and they're offering something that's copycat, but better than mine, right? Or whatever. I like all these fears come up. And I think that partly because I grew up in a low income environment. So I have my own primal fears around finances, but also it's an ever shifting marketplace. So when that happens, I try to step back and reconnect with my purpose and my mission which is not about making money. That's not how this started. I'm grateful to be able to make a living this way, but it's always coming back to service and not comparing myself to others and trusting in the authenticity and the integrity of the mission, but also the information itself. But it's scary. It's scary to be an entrepreneur and never know. You're constantly reinventing yourself each year. You're constantly reinventing your economics. And I'm sure that there are certain programs or certain products that reach a point where there's no going back. I think about that weird product. I forget what it's called. It's that girly name product for when you go poop in someone's house and you spray it in the <laughs> toilet first. And I was actually in my hardware store. Oh, in my or little, something. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. That one. I was in my little tiny hardware store in my little tiny town and they actually had that stuff on the checkout counter. And I thought, wow, that was some entrepreneur's idea. And it just caught on and there's a loyal following for it. And so they probably don't have to wonder whether it's going to continue to sell. But I think for most of us, there's always that wondering. And then also when you do start getting to a big enough point, then you do have to hire help. And so then you're once again diluting your income to some extent by hiring other people. So then you have to figure out, okay, well, how is this going to pay for itself and bring my income back to where it was? So I still have those fears. They are partly, I think, just a natural part of our makeup as human beings. I think they're part of the vulnerability that one really... I'm not a risk taker in a sense that I'm not someone who likes bungee jumping or like upside down roller coasters. I did have my babies at home, but I actually considered that safer than the hospital. So I still consider that for me, it was risk aversion to the hospital. Of course, not for everybody. Sometimes it's the right place to be in the hospital. But I'm not risk averse and I'm definitely not financially risk averse. And that is a whole other piece. Like being an entrepreneur will make you face your money fears. It'll make you face your self-doubts. Having people that you can talk with honestly about that makes a huge difference. And yeah, staying open to just kind of keep growing to new levels in yourself. I've had to look at why I have those fears. Why do I have the fear that the other shoe is always going to drop? So it's a lot about introspection and like I said, having other people who are going through it really makes a huge difference. And, you know, it's interesting too, when I started doing women's wellness, midwifery, herbal medicine, it was so early on. It was like 1985 that I was already out there writing a book and doing this stuff. It was so early on that it wasn't as popular, but there also wasn't as much noise. Now, it's not that I'm competing with other people, but there's so many other people talking about herbal medicine or birth or women's health that it can get easy to start looking at what everyone else is doing and comparing and feeling inadequate. And, you know, Facebook and Instagram only escalate that awareness that we all have. 
for me, a lot of it is shutting that information out and just wishing other people well and trusting that there's room for all of us. But I think all of us face the fact how many health coaches are, how many wellpreneurs are there, how many good food blogs are there, how many people are there with gorgeous Instagram feeds. It's challenging. I'm glad you brought up social media because that's a really hot topic. Not so much in using it for business because I think there's a lot of information on that. But what about personally? How do you, I mean, do you control how much time or moderate how much time you spend on it just to get out of that whole comparison thing? I do. I'm the person who does all my own social media. So I create and post all my Facebook posts for my public and my private sites. And I do on my own Instagram. And for me, I love it because one, it's creative, it's fun, but it keeps me in real connection with my audience. I'm one answering the comments. So I'm hearing what women are asking for and need and their real-time reactions. But what I don't let myself do is spend very much time in my home feed. I think it's the home feed where you see what everyone else is posting. Mm -hmm. I'll periodically go through it just so I know whose birthday it might be. Or if someone in my community who follows me has a baby, it's really fun to say, oh, congratulations, you know. But for the most part, I don't go looking at other people's feeds. I also am not subscribed to any other lists. So I don't get my friends lists. I don't get people in my wellness spaces list. And it's not that I don't want to support other people and add my name to their list. It's that I personally find it constantly distracting. It's like, oh, so-and-so is writing about this. And so is she. And so is she. And so is she. Oh, maybe I should be writing about that. For me personally, maybe it's not for other people who are more contained and disciplined about it, but I find it emotionally distracting. So I don't subscribe to other people. So my inbox is pretty much always 20 or 30 things in my inbox. And half of those are things that I'm just keeping there to placehold for something. And I'm not constantly cluttered by the overwhelm of shoulds. Should I be doing what Chris Carr is doing or Chris Kresser is doing or Gabby Bernstein's doing or Sarah Gottfried's doing or Kelly Brogan's doing or Amy Myers? You know, it's like it could go on and on. And each of us can shout out those 50 people in our wellness space. Yeah. So it saves me a little bit of stress and aggravation. And I have an internal practice that when I do come across something somebody else is doing, that gets me agitated on the inside. I just wish them well. Sometimes if I do see it, I'll like deliberately go and like it. It's almost like I'm offering it up to the universe, if you will, of like goodwill and generosity and love rather than internalizing it. But yeah, I find that social media can be really distracting. Instagram can be also because people are curating their best life, right? And they're curating their most beautiful everything. So I will actually just periodically Instagram something where I'm totally, you know, makeup free or whatever, whatever, just trying to keep it real. And because that's how I live my life. So it's like, I'm going to keep it real. And it's funny, people really appreciate that. I get a lot of comments when I do that. So I try to keep it real as an example. Sometimes I'm really busy and I might go three weeks without an email to my list, without a new blog, because I'm just busy doing something else. There's a launch or I'm just on vacation living my life and not curating every site of it with, with posts. And I will write to my list to say, hey, just trying to walk my talk and, you know, I'm just living my life. I'll get 100 emails when I do that that say, thank you so much for being an example and reminding us to just turn it off sometimes. Well, how have you found podcasting? Like, how's that been going? Um, I love it. I really do. I'm always sorting out new ways to do it. It's the one area where I'd like to be 
a little more consistent, but because I'm creating all my own content and all my own social media, I can't keep every ball 100% mm-hmm. cycling every time. But I really love the fact that I'll get emails from women. It's so cute. I try to keep it very general audience rating because I'll get emails from women who are like, Dr. Aviva, I was turning on your podcast in the car and my three-year-old in the car seat said, it's Dr. Aviva. You know, <laughs> uh, I got a really poignant email from a woman last year who I still need to write back to. So if she's listening, I hope she knows she's on my radar to write back to. It's like such an important email that I've been trying to find the words to write back. But she was walking up a street and she said she was listening to me on my podcast. And I don't even know what episode it was, but she said I was talking about women and self-care and making time to bring beauty in your life and just stop and pause. And she said she was walking up a street and she saw this dress in a window. And she usually would never give herself time to go and look at something like that. And she did. She walked into the store and the dress was at the back of the store. And all of a sudden, there was this massive explosion. There was glass flying everywhere. And she had this instinct to run out the back of the store. Not an instinct, but like fear overcame her, actually. And she was listening to me at this time talking about having courage to live your best life. And she said she was an emergency room nurse or a trauma nurse. And she was on Las Ramblas in Barcelona when the bombing happened. She was in a store on Las Ramblas. And so instead of following her fear, she got her strength and gathered herself and she went out into the crowd. And she said she helped this little Moroccan girl who had gotten injuries on her face and find her father and just went into like this healer mode. And she felt so empowered and really taught me, you never know what you're going to say that can completely transform someone else's life. So it makes me try to be very thoughtful and careful about what I say and really intentional. And at the same time, it's such a privilege to know that other people are welcoming me into their life that way. Yeah. And to be part of people's lives as they're going about their lives. That's what I love about podcasting is people listen in the car or at the gym or while they're cooking, or you really become part of their life. Yeah. It's so true. And kids, that's why, like, I, I, I'll say at the beginning of a podcast, you know, okay, this particular guest, you guys, there might be an F bomb between us today because we're both New Yorkers or something. So if your kids are listening, shut it down now. Or I might say, this one might be something you might want to listen to with your teenage daughters, but you might not. So listen ahead of time, you know. Mm-hmm, totally. It is really a privilege. Everything I get to do is a privilege. And we were talking earlier about overwhelm, and there are definitely moments. There's probably some moment most days where there's that moment of overwhelm. Overwhelm, and sometimes there's more of it, and sometimes there's just beautiful breathing room. But one of my mantras for myself is a reframe that I use, which is instead of saying, I have to do this, I say, I get to do this. And I remind myself in that moment, okay, first of all, you asked for this. You asked for a busy business. You asked for a successful business. And this is what it looks like. You know, I think we're fed this bill of goods, I think is the expression of the four-hour work week. But the people I know who know Tom Ferriss say he does not work a four-hour work week. He works crazy hours. But it's like this false news that we think that being entrepreneurial means that at some point we get to a four-hour work week. And I think the only way that could possibly ever happen for most people is if they really have a multi-million dollar business and they are managing one person who's managing the business. But most people I know who are successful entrepreneurs are not 
working four hours a week. I mean, maybe they have a day here and there where they work four hours, but yeah. most of the people I know are taking their laptops on their vacation with them, quite frankly. Yeah, especially with the online business world. And I think that if you follow a lot of people that run online businesses on Instagram, on Facebook, you can start to see all these pictures of, oh, look, I'm on my laptop by the pool and da da da. Actually, have you tried to work by the pool? Like it's really difficult yes. because you can't see the it's screen awesome. and it's not relaxing. Well, <laughs> it's not. I had a photo shoot recently for my website. So I got some new photos done. And one of the photos was like a setup of me at a cafe with another woman who actually was like the photographer's assistant, but we were creating this scenario. And the photographer said, can I have your cell phone? And she put the cell phone on the table next to me. And then she put the other woman's cell phone on the table next to her. I was like, what's up with that? She said, well, I wanted to look natural. I said, well, actually, I never, ever have my cell phone out unless the only time I would ever have my cell phone out if I were out to a meal or lunch or visiting with someone else, even my husband or my kids, is if I knew that I had a woman who was having a miscarriage or having a complication in pregnancy, something where I had to be available. And then I would apologize to the person and say, I've got my cell phone out for this reason. And that would happen very rarely, a couple of times a year that could happen. But otherwise, I literally never have my cell phone out and I can go days without looking at my cell phone. I don't have my email on my cell phone. And so I'm a strong believer in digital detox. I don't post on my Facebook page every day. And I've gotten over feeling that's somehow irresponsible or inconsistent. It's actually me really living a healthy life. Not that someone who's posting every day isn't, but since I do my own Facebook, I can't post every day and write a blog every week and do a podcast every week and see patients and write books and keep up content. So I've become much more comfortable with the fact that yeah, I might go three weeks without a blog. If I don't have something to say, why am I saying it just to be consistent? That's silly. It's not that I always have things to say, but it might not be something that translates into a blog. It might be something that I write in a course or in a book. So I've gotten more comfortable really stepping away. And so I will take a vacation now and not bring my computer with me, or I'll take a vacation and commit to not going on the internet at all and just working on things offline. I think it's really important. You know, it wasn't that long ago that computers and cell phones and social media weren't really even in our daily life. And I think that, at least for me, I've actually noticed that my brain function changes when I'm constantly going from one platform to another. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of handwritten stuff, and then I type it up later. I read a lot of books offline, not on a Kindle, like real books. I don't have a Kindle. I try to do as much analog or handwritten as possible so that I'm stepping away from that. You know, on an evolutionary basis, I think our brains were meant to function doing multiple different tasks, right? We cooked, we created basketry, we hunted, we skinned animals, we gardened, we tended children, we did beadwork, we wove things. There were multiple different ways that we used our eyes and our hands. And I think that we have more stimulation to multiple different areas of our brain that actually create more creativity that way. And I think we start to lose that when we're just on the computer in one dimension. No, thank you for saying that. It's so addictive technology. And I did do a digital detox a couple summers ago for an entire month. And it was amazing because wow. you, know, you feel the difference in your brain. Well, I haven't managed it since then, <laughs> but, no, but, but that's I, a long time. I that's did an amazing. entire month. 
you can really tell the difference in your focus and attention. So thanks for sharing that, that we can, yeah, you, know, you can bring it, bring it into your daily life to try to give yourself a bit more space. Yeah, even my eyesight is better when I'm taking breaks from the computer. Yeah. My vision. Well, because you're so focused on the screen just at yeah. one distance, yeah. right? Instead of like looking out in the distance and yeah, oh, it's good to get time offline. <laughs> as much as we love, I love technology, but it's good to get offline. We're yes. starting to run out of time, but I really want to ask if there are daily rituals or a morning routine or other things like that that you have to keep yourself well as you're running your business. Yeah. So my biggest, probably most consistent and most important daily ritual that I do almost every single day is trying to get off the computer an hour before I go to bed and read a real book and fall asleep reading a real book or go to sleep because I get tired and really being very diligent about getting seven to eight hours of sleep a night. You know, there's an occasional six hour night, maybe once every few months, but really trying to get that good sleep. And then when I wake up in the morning, I don't look at my electronics, like my cell phone, my computer, other people's agenda in my inbox until I have had a shower, ideally done some breathing. My husband and I have a nice practice. We don't do it every day, but we try to remember to do it semi-regularly, which is when we wake up in the morning, we say to each other one thing we're looking forward to that day and one thing we're grateful for. And then I have a slow morning. And then when I sit down to work, I try to spend no more than 30 minutes on my inbox. And then I take a big chunk of time, like three hours on my big important task because then I feel really good that I've gotten something big done instead of getting distracted down the rabbit hole of that inbox agenda of everyone else's. Then I really do try to take a break, have some lunch, get out on my back deck because I mostly work from home. Then in the afternoon, again, have a big chunk of time. And then again, try to have regular meals and then some time in the evening where I take off every evening, even if I take off for two hours and then have something that I want to pick back up and do. But I would say, yeah, the bedtime wind down is critically important to me and that waking up in a gentle way and not jumping right into electronics and getting some movement. And for us, we live out in the country. So a lot of times it's an early morning walk, sometimes even a late afternoon stretching or getting outside for a walk can give a second round of energy. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I just interviewed a guy who takes his big walk in the middle of the day and he said it revolutionized his work day. I think it's huge. Yeah. yeah. Just get that time. Like he does serious work in the morning and then he just has an hour walk where he doesn't listen to any podcasts or any music. He just totally nice. lets his brain free associate. I was like, that's such a brilliant idea. Just, yeah, I think yeah, that free association is so important. It really lets us integrate what we're doing and get fresh ideas. And I think for everyone, it's different. I know for me that I can write really well if I start writing early in the morning. But if I try to pick up a fresh writing project at like three or four in the mm-hmm. afternoon, it's not a good writing time for me. It's a time where I want to be communicating, connecting with other people or getting outside. So I know for me to chunk my writing times in the morning, I never take morning interviews unless it's something critical or morning meetings. So I then reserve all my meetings and my interviews for anywhere between three and five, because I know that that's a great time for me to chat with other people and not be sitting at my desk writing. So learning what your own natural rhythm is, is really helpful for how you structure your day and create those rituals. It's been so great talking to you, Aviva. Thanks so much for sharing all of this. Can you tell us a bit about the books you have available? I guess they're available on Amazon, but let everybody know what they are. 
Yeah. So my most recent book is called The Adrenal Thyroid Revolution. And don't let the title fool you. If you don't think you have an adrenal or thyroid problem, it's still really relevant for any women who are finding themselves often on that edge of overwhelm or burnout and how those stress systems affect our health and also how we can protect and preserve them so you don't end up in my office with your thyroid problem. My other books are Natural Pregnancy Book, which actually I wrote over 20 years ago, and The Naturally Healthy Babies and Children. I have some other books around women's health and then also a textbook on herbal medicine for women. You have a course coming up also. Yeah, I have two professional programs. And the one that we are in launch right now on is called the New Medicine for Women Institute. And that is a integrative functional medicine program on all things in women's healthcare, from autoimmune disease to hormones to gut health to preconception care, menopause, allergies, immunity, everything. And it's comprehensive. It's a 10-month program. And that's for health coaches and health professionals. And then I have another program called Herbal Medicine for Women, which is exactly what it sounds like. And all of the professional programs are by a woman, for women, and about women. So they're women-only students programs as well. So we that really nice, juicy, safe space for women to share what they're experiencing in their practices and in their entrepreneurial pursuits and also their personal lives. Awesome. Aviva, thank you so much for being here today. We'll link up all of those things, your books and the programs in the show notes so all the listeners can access those. But thanks so much for taking the time. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great questions. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Wellpreneur Podcast. As always, you can get all the links to everything we mentioned in the show notes at wellpreneuronline.com. And if you'd like to continue the conversation about this episode, come find us on Facebook in the Wellpreneur Community Group, where you can ask questions and get support from over 3,000 other Wellpreneurs who listen to the podcast all around the world. And we can also talk about what we learned this week. So this episode is episode 11 of our third season of the podcast, and that means there's only one more episode to go. So next week, I'll be back here with the final episode of season three, and then we're going to go on a little bit of a break. But don't worry, you can still listen to over 200 episodes that have already been released on the podcast. Probably you haven't heard them all, so you can go back and listen. There's some good ones. We can make you some recommendations in the Facebook group if you let us know what you're particularly interested in. And of course, I'll always be in the Facebook group to be chatting with you during that time. So don't worry about that, but we'll give you a little time to catch up on some other listening. So I'll see you back here next week for the next episode, which will be the last episode of season three. Have a great week. See you later.